Welcome to the GMAT Strategy Podcast. You're here because you believe there's a better way to study for the GMAT, and so do I. I created the GMAT Strategy to maximize your results and minimize your efforts so you can get to the fun parts about business school and life as quickly as possible. My name is Isaac Puglia, and I've been teaching GMAT classes and tutoring privately for the GMAT for over six years, and I personally have achieved a 99th percentile score on an official GMAT exam and helped hundreds of students get into the business schools of their choice. I'm excited to be a part of your MBA journey since I think the world can benefit from the best possible business leaders that we can find. And if this show is bringing you value, please share it with your friends and family who are studying for the GMAT so that together we can make this process as easy and painless for as many people as we possibly can. Let's go. Let's talk about data sufficiency questions. It's important to have a deep understanding of data sufficiency questions because they're such an unfamiliar format. Unlike problem-solving questions, which are usually a very familiar format for people, if you've taken standardized tests in the past. On a problem-solving question, I have a simple job. I solve a math problem, I get an answer, and then I'm done. However, on data sufficiency questions, things are a little bit more complicated because, as I think you'll come to understand, data sufficiency questions are more like a logic question that just uses math content to test logical reasoning skills. So before I get too deep down that philosophical path of of what's at the heart of data sufficiency questions, let's talk about the essentials of the format, what you need to understand. Let's talk about a little bit of strategy and a little bit of background knowledge. And then I want to give you a a seven-step data sufficiency process that's going to make sure that without having to think too much, you can train yourself to always have great habits on data sufficiency questions. So let's start with the beginning. Data sufficiency questions are going to comprise slightly less than half of your overall quantitative section. Out of 31 questions, you're probably going to see somewhere between 12 and 15 data sufficiency questions, and it depends on the day. Your mix of data sufficiency versus problem solving is essentially random. There's always a question at the beginning of a data sufficiency problem, and that'll always be at the top of the screen. The the top of the screen when you're looking at a data sufficiency question on test day is going to be some type of question. Sometimes there's some given information before the question. Sometimes it's just a question itself, like what is the value of X? Or how many minutes does it take Andre to complete a task by himself? The given information might be simple, like if X is a positive integer, what is the value of X? Or it might be extremely complicated with some algebraic formulas, different equations, or sometimes even strange symbols that represent functional math operations. After the question, you're going to see two facts, and it's, it's always two. These are called statements, technically, but it's good to think about them as facts because the statements are always true. That they're never lying to you. So you can always trust that whatever the first statement says is actually accurate, and same thing with the second statement. There's always going to be two. The first one will be numbered one. The second one will be number two. Your job on a data sufficiency question is pretty different than a problem-solving question. In a problem-solving question, I'm just trying to get an answer. But on a data sufficiency problem, I'm really being asked, how much data do I need to theoretically answer this question definitively. I'll say that again. Your job on a data sufficiency question is to figure out how much data you need 
to theoretically answer a question definitively. It doesn't always require that you have an answer to that question. And I'll get deeper into that later. As long as you could theoretically get a definitive answer, that's enough data. Now, you'll wind up asking very similar questions on data sufficiency problems the more you do them. You'll ask, is the first fact or statement by itself alone enough to answer this question? Or could I answer the question with just the second statement? Or do I need both? If I have both, I can answer it. Or maybe I still can't answer this question even with both pieces of information. And what you'll find is those correspond with the five answer options on data sufficiency problems, which are always the same. The answer options never change. So answer choice A will always correspond with the first statement is enough data to answer the question, but the second statement is not. Answer choice B will always be the inverse of that. The second statement is enough data to answer the question, but the first is not. C is you cannot answer the question with both individually. That's important. For C to be an option, you already have to have established that the two independently are not enough. However, if you put them together and you can answer the question, that's when you pick C. But you only consider C as an option if you've already figured out that one by itself is not enough and two by itself is not enough. D is the answer you select if one by itself is enough and also, independently of that, two by itself is enough. E is the answer you select if even if both of them are put together, you still can't answer the question. Now, it's, uh, it's very important to, to make a note here, and a lot of people get confused about data sufficiency problems. The, the problem is not just asking you, can you produce some type of answer to this question? It's not just, you know, what's the value of x? And you're like, oh, well, sometimes x is 7. I can clearly see that, so therefore that first statement is sufficient. It's very critical to think instead, do I always get the same answer? That's why I used the word definitively so forcefully when I was talking to you about what a data sufficiency question is really asking. You're being asked, can you theoretically solve a, a question, sorry, answer a question definitively? Meaning, if the question is, what's the value of x? A definitive answer would be, x is always 7. If, if in some situations x is 6 and in other situations x is 7, then you don't have sufficient data to answer that question in the eyes of the GMAT. You must be able to answer the question definitively. Now, before we can discuss that further, we should talk about how there are actually two types of data sufficiency questions, but the good news is there's, there's only two. The first is a value question, which I asked you earlier, what's the value of x? Value questions often, often have the word value in them. Uh, however, not always. For example, how many minutes does it take Andre to complete a certain task? That's a value question. If in some situations you calculate that Andre could take 30 minutes, if in other situations he could take 35, that's not going to be sufficient data on a value question. And that's why it's good to think of value questions kind of like salary questions. How much money am I going to make next year? Well, if you go into your boss's office tomorrow and you say, hey, how much money am I going to make next year? And they say, well, we're not really sure. You're either going to make $50 or you're going to make $50,000. Then you're thinking, well, that is confusing. <laughs> I'm either looking for a brand new job in most cases, or maybe I'm really happy with $50,000. 
But if you go into your boss's office tomorrow and you say, how much money am I going to make next year? And they say, you're definitely going to make exactly $50,000. And then you come back the next day and you're like, I'm really excited to make $50,000. Am I still going to make it? And they're like, yeah. And then every month for the next year, you get a paycheck that's consistent with earning $50,000 a year. That's sufficient data. You know that you're going to earn $50,000 next year unless you go out of business or something drastic happens, right? So that's how you want to think about value questions. One value is going to suffice. If there could be multiple values, now you're confused. You don't have enough uh, data to make a good decision. That's different than the other type of data sufficiency question, which is called a yes or no data sufficiency question. And instead of asking you what's the value of x, the question might ask you something like, is x equal to 7? Well, there's really only two definitive answers to that question. It's either equal to 7, yes, or it is not equal to 7, no. Now, there's a third non-definitive answer, which is maybe, and we'll talk about that in a second. It's good to think about yes-no questions kind of like marriage, not like salary. If I ask you, hey, will you marry me? And you say yes, oh, fantastic, greatest day of my life, it's definitive, we're getting married, everything's good. If I ask you, hey, will you marry me? And you say no, oh, I'm crushed, but I have a definitive answer. I can move on with my life. I don't need to be worrying about whether maybe we could have worked things out. It's like definitive no, we're not getting married. Okay, gotcha. Now, if I ask you, hey, will you marry me? And you, and you say yes. And then the next day I'm like, hey, are you excited to get married? And you're like, oh, I'm not really that excited anymore. Well, now I'm really confused. <laughs> that's a maybe answer. If sometimes x is equal to seven, but sometimes it is not equal to seven, that's not sufficient data. Just like if you're excited one day to get married, and then you are very unexcited to get married the next day, that's probably not a good foundation to get married on, right? It's not sufficient data to build a marriage on top of. So value questions you think about like salary, how much money am I going to make? I need a definitive value. Yes, no questions you think about marriage. I need either a definitive yes or a definitive no. Either will suffice. Either will suffice. I just need a definitive answer one way or the other. If I'm sometimes getting uh, yeses and sometimes getting nos, mixed signals, then that is not enough data to answer the question. Now what you'll find because of the answer choices is that more than probably any other problem type on the GMAT, data sufficiency questions reward a consistent process. And that's, that's what I want to build for you in the next few moments. So the first and most important thing that you can do on data sufficiency questions is to always write down what's given and what's asked. So few people do this. <laughs> it's terrifying how few people actually write down what's given and asked on data sufficiency questions. And I think that's just because most of us have the intuition that we can probably do these problems in our heads. Or you just don't really realize how important it is to write down what's given and asked. But when they give you constraints like x is a positive integer or x, y, and z are consecutive integers, they're always giving you those constraints for a reason. And if you forget those constraints, then you're way, way off the rails. It would almost be like forgetting the compliance rules in your job and you're working away, working away, working away. You could have the best intent, but if you forget the compliance rules and you break the law, well, now your whole business has a huge, huge problem. Same thing will happen with data sufficiency. Positive intent is not enough to get data sufficiency questions right. You need a structured approach. So always start by writing down what's given and asked. And if you do it consistently, it won't take a lot of extra time. And you won't have to think about it too much when you see data sufficiency questions. That'll keep you from missing tons and tons of data sufficiency questions. It'll save you so much pain and so much suffering. Once you've written down what you're being given 
and what the question is asking you, it's a very, very good idea to try to simplify that question. And usually that happens with some algebra. Now, that the details of simplifying data sufficiency questions is probably beyond the scope of a podcast like this, but I would encourage you, if you haven't learned about simplifying data sufficiency questions in a class that you're taking or from a private tutor you're working with or from a digital class that you might be enrolled in, if you haven't learned about that yet, pop simplifying data sufficiency questions or how to simplify data sufficiency questions into a web search and go through a few articles or a few video tutorials until you really understand what that looks like. And I'm going to strongly encourage you to make that an automatic part of your data sufficiency process because in general, it's easier to answer simpler questions. So if you can simplify a question, that's probably going to make your life significantly easier. And I would say that probably between 30 and 50% of data sufficiency questions, you can simplify and that makes a tremendous difference in how much easier the question gets after that. After you've written the question in the simplest terms that you possibly can, it's a good idea to check the very first statement alone by itself. And that's because you have to respect the fact that answer choice A might be the answer. It's possible that statement one is enough data to answer the question, but you don't want the second statement in there clouding your judgment. So you just want to look at statement one by itself in a vacuum and ask, is this enough data to answer the question? Once you've determined that, you might have to do some math, you might have to do some reasoning, some algebraic reasoning. Once you've determined whether one is enough or not, then you want to do something kind of weird, <laughs> which is you want to forget statement one. You want to forget that statement one exists and you want to evaluate statement two by itself in a vacuum. Now it's probably worth saying that after you evaluate statement one, you can probably eliminate at least two answer choices. If statement one is enough, then only answer choice A and answer choice D are theoretically possible. If statement one is not enough to answer the question, it's impossible that the answer is either A or D. Now, once you've eliminated those, then you forget statement one and you evaluate statement two by itself in a vacuum. And that's because you have to respect answer choice B. It's possible that B could be the answer and B says two by itself is enough, but one is not. If you forget to forget statement one, when you go to statement two and you accidentally remember the information from statement one, you're gonna think you have more information than you actually do when you're looking at statement two. Once you've forgotten statement one, then you evaluate statement two in a vacuum by itself and you ask, is this enough data to answer this question? If it is, then you're done. The answer is B. If it's not enough information to answer the question, you're going to have to eliminate answer choice B and then only at that point combine the two statements together to figure out whether together they are enough information to answer the question. But the reason you want to evaluate one by itself, then forget one, then evaluate two by itself before you combine them is because the specific wording of C says, independently, statements one and two are not sufficient. However, if you combine them, they are, to, they are enough. You don't want to combine the statements at the beginning of the problem or too early. Otherwise, that can create a ton of confusion. If C is not enough information, sorry, if both statements together are not enough information, then the answer is E. Now, I already discussed, if one by itself is enough and two by itself is enough, then you select answer choice D. So let me just run through the process again. You write down what's given and asked. You simplify the question as much as possible. You evaluate one by itself in a vacuum. You do some answer choice elimination. Then you forget about one, you delete it from your mind, and then you evaluate two in a vacuum by itself. At the bare minimum, you will always go through those first five steps.
If it turns out that one by itself is not enough, and it also turns out that two by itself is not enough, then and only then you will combine the two pieces of information. So you won't always be combining the statements in data sufficiency questions. I see people mess this up all the time and uh, creates a lot of stress, a lot of confusion, okay? Feel free to reach out to me on any of my social media channels if you have questions about this. I'm at the GMAT strategy on Instagram, on YouTube, on Facebook, and on Reddit. Now, I want to give you one more tip for data sufficiency questions, which I think is just unbelievably simple, but just game-changingly powerful, which is you should always write out all of your work on data sufficiency questions. Your scratch work should be so clear that someone sh should be able to follow your logic through the problem. They can tell exactly what your thought process was step-by-step step just from looking at your scratch work without asking you. Now, that's a very high bar. Most people don't even get close to that, and that's why most people end up missing a lot of data sufficiency questions that they could and should have gotten right. You can save yourself a ton of pain and agony by just building good habits from the beginning. And my advice to you is if you're just starting out studying, let yourself be very slow on data sufficiency questions. Don't feel the pressure to finish them in two minutes. Don't even feel the pressure to finish them in five minutes. Just focus on good scrap paper techniques and making sure you're stepping through the logic properly. And if you do that, you'll be surprised that in a few days or a few weeks in certain cases, uh, you'll start to build quite a bit of speed and you'll be doing things fast, but you'll be doing them the right way. It's totally fine to go quickly if you have a good process. If you don't have a good process, going quickly can really, really hurt you. Now, it can be a little bit painful to be slow. Just let yourself be slow and let yourself suck at data sufficiency a little bit for the first, <laughs> first few weeks that you're getting used to it. And you'll thank yourself for that later down the line. Now, if you've been studying for a while and you really struggle with data sufficiency problems or you're having a lot of trouble on practice tests or even official exams, missing a lot of data sufficiency questions or just missing a lot of data sufficiency questions that you know how to do, then I would recommend take the time pressure out of the situation, focus on the process I just gave you and focus on making your scratch work really, really clear. And with enough time, with enough repetition, you'll get back up to speed, no problem, and you'll have much, much better habits. Now, one final recommendation for data sufficiency problems is you should develop a structured approach for testing numbers. Testing numbers is something you can do on at least half of data sufficiency questions that you'll see. And it's probably the best strategy at least 30% of the time on a lot of questions for a lot of people. Now, that might be controversial to some people. Some people might not be a fan of testing numbers on data sufficiency questions. I'm a big fan of it. And I think most people can benefit from a better, more structured approach to testing numbers. If you're really interested in my methodology for testing numbers, I teach what I think is the best method in my digital class called the GMAT strategy. And if you want more information about that, just go to thegmatstrategy.com and check out the informational video that I'll also reference at the end of this podcast. If you have a, a method, a structured method for testing numbers from the class you're taking or from a private tutor you're working with or from a digital uh, class that you're taking or maybe just from some free information online, that's great. That's great. It's probably good enough. The key is to be very, very consistent with it. So every time you're testing numbers, you do that exactly the same way and you have a very structured visual organizational approach where you're writing things out in a very, very systematic way, basically the same way every single time. And you're just making small adjustments for the nuances of the problem. Again, check out my class if you're really interested in what I think is the best approach to making that happen. If you have questions on this stuff, like I mentioned, feel free to reach out on my social channels. Otherwise, as always, my greatest hope is that 
This content will make your studies as easy and as painless as possible. If you want more tips and strategies for optimizing your performance on the GMAT, just head to thegmatstrategy.com and check out my free video presentation on how to achieve your goal score in half the normal time and with half the normal effort. In the meantime, this is a weekly show, so please subscribe and stay positive and stay consistent with your studies. I'll talk to you soon.